This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with world-renowned philosopher Peter Singer. Peter is a professor of bioethics at Princeton University and he joined me to talk about utilitarianism, effective altruism and his philosophical arguments on how we should treat animals. We also discussed his seminal work, Animal Liberation, which was first published in 1975. I'm really pleased and delighted to have with me on Skype the wonderful Peter Singer, who is uh, a world-renowned philosopher and bioethicist. He is a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He's also a laureate professor at the University of Melbourne and hails from Melbourne but uh, lives mainly over in the US uh, nowadays. And Peter Singer is in Melbourne for a number of events, which is wonderful. Um, He will be appearing at uh, a Law Week event next Tuesday, a dinner conversation with Peter Singer. And uh, he's also delivering a lecture tonight at Swinburne University about uh, philanthropy and well he's not delivering a lecture he's having a conversation with the wonderful Peter Mears who we've also had on this show and in fact uh, I believe we were talking about Peter Singer's um, work with the, in that discussion so I'm delighted now to welcome Peter. Hi there. Hi Amy good to be with you. Thanks so much for taking the time out to speak with us today. Oh, I'm very happy to do that. Um, if I just mention the, the conversation this evening, yes. although it's uh, hosted by Swinburne University, it's actually in Melbourne Town Hall. Uh, it's not out at Swinburne. But I think it may be sold out. I don't know. But if people want to go, they can still try. Sometimes uh, people don't turn up. Yes, I believe there's a wait list. So you could put your name down because um, obviously yeah, people do make those last-minute cancellations. So um, let's head into philosophy. Um It's really exciting for me, having studied a bit of philosophy, um, to speak to you about a a real um, theory and philosophical idea that has had a great amount of influence in the world. And one of, I'm thinking in particular about utilitarianism, which is... um, certainly was introduced to me in my subject on ethical theory and certainly one of the most prominent uh, utilitarians of the 19th century was John Stuart Mill, although he was not the first to have um, talked about and furthered the ideas that are relating to utilitarianism. Um, but I'd like to understand from you, first of all, what are the what's the common ground that all utilitarians um, base their, their theory or their ideas on? Okay, well, obviously it depends a little bit on exactly how you define utilitarianism, but let me say utilitarianism is part of a larger group of theories that philosophers now call consequentialism. And the common ground for all consequentialists is that they think that whether an action is right or wrong depends on its consequences. So it doesn't depend on whether you obey some rule or like like, like the Ten Commandments or some other set of rules uh, or and it doesn't really depend on whether you're uh, violating some human right you know even that could be justified if the consequences are, are good enough so so that's the first thing that you say well whether an action is right or wrong you have to look at the consequences what's going to come out of that um, and that's this general larger family of theories. And uh, the way I use the term utilitarianism, it's one among a number of different consequentialist theories. And it's distinguished from the others by the fact that the consequences that utilitarians look at 
are consequences for the well-being of all of those affected. So essentially, utilitarians say, we're interested in making everybody affected better off in some way. Now, exactly what they mean by well-being uh, or making them better off, that's something we can talk about in more detail. But they're, they're in that general family. So they wouldn't just say, for example, well, the consequences that I'm interested in are um, preserving justice, irrespective of its consequences. You know, some people might say justice, that there's a just outcome is a good result. And there's this old saying, let justice be done, even though the heavens fall. So utilitarians would not say that. They would say, no, if by the heavens falling, you mean justice is done, but let's say, you know, the world is destroyed, um, then that would be a terrible consequence. And we don't support the idea of justice, even at the cost of destroying the world. So uh, so that's how I would regard utilitarians. They're, they're consequentialists concerned with the well-being of all of those affected. Right. And in terms of the ways that we also look about look at those positive consequences, there is that um, flip side about the negative consequences. And um, you've spoken in your work about suffering and reducing um, pointless suffering, suffering that isn't, um, you know, required in this life and to reduce the amount of suffering. How does that fit into um, a, a kind of utilitarianism? Yeah, well, when I talked about well-being, um, there's obviously positive well-being. So let's say everybody's very happy or enjoying their lives. Um, and then there's negative well-being, which would be they're suffering, they're miserable, they're in pain. Um, those kinds of things. So, so you can think of uh, putting well-being on a scale where perhaps uh, there's a zero level um, where you're neither happy nor miserable, and then there's a plus level and there's a, a negative level where you're miserable. And what utilitarians want to do is to have the greatest possible uh, positive surplus of of well-being. That is, you know, after you deduct the negatives, the pain and suffering, there's the greatest possible positive suffer, uh, surplus left. Or if you're a pessimist and you believe, well, we can't actually produce a positive, then you would like the smallest possible negative. You would like to reduce the suffering as much as possible. So uh, this is all, all part of the one scale, I guess. Utilitarians think that in some way they're, they're on one kind of spectrum and you can move from suffering through a level of indifference to a positive level on that scale. Yes, and some of the um, key proponents of utilitarianism in the early years um, were people like uh, Jeremy Bentham and also John Stuart Mill. And I was interested to read um, in a, a short introduction that you wrote on utilitarianism uh, about some of the ideas that Bentham was putting forward around defending things like sexual freedom and sexual tastes and um, his his point that we should not be punished for having differing um, sexual practices or tastes unless they could be shown to cause harm. Um, that seems to be a fairly progressive um, and forward-thinking view. Do you think that that um, utilitarianism has pushed um, society along in kind of moving forward on issues like that? Oh, definitely. I think utilitarianism has been a very progressive force. Um, and we're only just really learning how progressive Bentham was because uh, on some, I mean, on some issues, of course, he wrote a great deal in his lifetime uh, and was very progressive on things like uh, uh, voting reform, you know, pushing for a broader suffrage, um, on things like uh, more humane prisons, 
uh, even on the treatment of animals, which I hope we'll be talking about later. He, he wrote in his own lifetime. But, uh, and also, I should say, uh, both Mill and Bentham, of course, were very strong advocates for women, um, for uh, equality for women. But um, Bentham, at least, didn't always dare to put forward his views in public because he thought they would discredit uh, some of these ideas. So, for example, on the question of, of extending the suffrage so that more people could vote, Bentham put forward the view that every man ought to have a vote, you know, irrespective of income and wealth, which at the time it was very restricted. And he actually wrote privately um, to, to uh, other utilitarians. He wrote, of course, I really believe that every woman should have a vote as well. But if I put that forward in my public writing, I'm just going to be ridiculed. And the idea of giving every man a vote isn't going to get anywhere. That was basically his thinking. Um, and on the sexual questions, um, he also did not publish these in his own lifetime. Bentham left, a, I think, something like 48,000 pages of unpublished writings, a vast amount, um, which is only just starting to be read and published because the handwriting isn't always very good either. Um, but so that, so that his, his writings on sexual freedom have only been published in the last 20 or 30 years, um, and some of them more recently than that. But yes, he, he's very progressive, and he's very clear that... Um, you know, the people may have differences of taste, whether you have, you know, sex with a person of the opposite sex or a person of the same sex, for example. Um, and uh, he says, you know, but to, to ruin a person, to make them a criminal, essentially, um, simply because you differ from their taste is, is something uh, unacceptable. But, but that's in an unpublished work that, that he thought was just not going to be really tolerated at the time that he was living. Mm, it's fascinating that that is only just coming out. Um, and John Stuart Mill was seen as really someone who was picking up from Bentham and carrying forward his legacy and building on it. And um, as you say, he was a progressive. He was a feminist himself and um, later married Harriet Taylor Mill, who um, he gave a lot of credit for when it comes to his works around uh, women and progressing women's rights, not just to vote, but to own property and to stand for parliament and um, as you've highlighted in this um, work that his piece the subjection of women was um, a very important work in 1869 um, he seemed to have been able to at least put some of those views out uh, more publicly and um, although I, I do understand that he was also um, understandably at the time ridiculed because of some of the things he was saying were so progressive and so different um, to what the current practice was in regards to women. Yes, you're, you're, you're quite right. Um, he certainly was well in advance of his time, but uh, he was, I guess, more at ease with the public. He actually became a member of parliament uh, briefly um, than, than Bentham, who was somewhat, you know, more of a recluse, I guess. Um, and uh, perhaps things had progressed a bit in the, the years since Bentham was alive. Mill was, you know, we're talking about, say, 40 years after Bentham died when Mill was writing the, publishing The Subjection of Women. Uh, and you're quite right that Harriet Taylor had a major role in that, and Mill acknowledged that clearly. Um, so uh, I think maybe, yes, things have become a little bit easier, uh, but still not on the sexuality question that we were talking about, I don't, as far as I remember. Oh, I suppose actually it's true that in, in Mill's writing on liberty, um, there's an implication that you should not make a, any act a crime unless it harms others. So there's a kind of implication that if consenting adults have sexual relations in private that other people don't like or even think are immoral, um, that should not be criminalized. 
but as far as I remember, I don't think Mill actually used that as an example. I think he probably thought even still at that time that would be going too far for the public to to talk about explicitly talk about same-sex relationships in that context. Yes. Um, so let's move into the discussion around animals. And um, in the, the same publication, um, you're talking about um, utilitarian views about animals and there's so many elements of animals and their welfare. And, of course, the, the end of the spectrum is that they're killed um, for humans to consume, but they are also treated um, in many cases poorly and not treated with the same um, rights or dignity that a human being would be treated with. Um, so I'd just like to um, highlight what you've said in um, one one or two sentences and we can spring from that point. Um, you write, although utilitarian views about the painless killing of animals vary, all the leading utilitarians are clear that suffering is no less bad when it is the suffering of an animal than when it is the suffering of a human. And um, you also quoted Jeremy Bentham in saying he was looking forward to the time when, quote, humanity will extend its mantle over everything which breathes. So in terms of the significance of animals and the fact that they should be treated um, in the same way in, in terms of their suffering as we might treat or um, perceive a human, Humans, why is why would why would we do that, and why do animals um, have or should have that kind of treatment? Well, I would argue that the reason for not regarding the pain of an animal as less significant than the similar kind of pain when experienced by a human is quite parallel to the reasons why we reject uh, racism and sexism. Right? If if somebody said. You know, well, of course, I, I care about when white people are in pain, but if uh, a black person is in pain, that doesn't matter so much. Uh, we would immediately say, well, you know, why? You know, how can you how can you justify that claim? Um, if if they're in pain and it's a similar amount of pain, it's it's irrelevant what colour their skin is or what race they are, and equally, it's irrelevant whether they're male or female. Um, so, I think that we can say the same about their species. You know. Uh, of course, it may be that beings of different species feel pain differently uh, or don't feel pain in certain ways that we might. That's relevant, and utilitarians would all agree that that's relevant. But just the fact that I'm a member of the species Homo sapien and you're a member of, uh, I don't know, Pantroglodytes, let's say the chimpanzee, you're a chimpanzee, um, is no reason to think that the the pain of the chimpanzee is less important uh, that it matters less if the chimpanzee is suffering in a similar way and that I think would be true of any animal that is capable of feeling pain yes and we know that animals are capable of feeling more than just physical pain but they can be experiencing other types of pain or suffering such as um, they might feel neglected or bored or um, treated they might have there is this kind of emotional connection between humans and animals that's often unspoken and but kind of understood on a on a non-verbal level isn't there yes we certainly understand it with the animals that we're close to so people who who live with dogs or cats um will certainly understand that those kinds of emotional responses they will understand you know, among the things you mentioned boredom but also things like like fear um they will uh, the separation of a of a mother and her young if we're talking about mammals anyway um clearly causes distress to both of them so there's lots of these 
kinds of uh, emotional responses that, that we're aware of. I, I think the main problem is that although we're aware of that if it comes to dogs, um, the same kind of thing will happen if we're talking about cows or pigs, let's say, um, and yet we don't, we're not so aware of that. We somehow don't think of them because we don't have them living in the house with us. We don't think of them, we don't get to know them, and we don't think of them as, uh, you know, as really mattering in the same way that we might think of our companion animals as mattering. Yes, that's a, an excellent point. Um, I know from my own experience with part of my family growing up on a farm, um, you know, when you are face to face with a cow or a pig and you um, have, I guess, a, an unspoken interaction with them, you can see in their eyes and in their soul something else um, more. And that's what I think moved me to become vegetarian when I was in grade three many, many years ago, um, was seeing a very, you know, pigs are such an intelligent um, species or animal. And I saw one pig that was in a pig farm that had been so overfed that it couldn't actually stand up and move and it was about to be taken off to be slaughtered and that was the moment when I realised I couldn't possibly eat an animal. Um, and I'm wondering whether there are similar moments for you or other people that you've um, met who have, I guess, had a connection with animals and then realised um, perhaps the, the consequences of their other choices in life. Well, I know that many people do have this kind of aha moment, and um, you know, I welcome that. And I think you're very brave to have made that decision already in in third grade, especially if I don't know if you were still living on a farm at the time. But but that does seem a, a brave act of rebellion. Um, but personally, no. I mean, I, I guess my my aha moment came much later um, when I was in my twenties and already a graduate student at at Oxford, and it was not through an encounter with uh, a non-human animal. It was a conversation with, uh, actually, I think really the first vegetarian I'd ever talked to. And, and I know this will seem very strange today that you could go through your entire life, you know, being an undergraduate at Melbourne University, um, uh, being in my mid-20s, um, before I'd actually met a vegetarian or had a conversation with a, vegeta a vegetarian. Maybe I'd, I'd met an Indian who was a vegetarian or something like that, but obviously I wasn't going to be a Hindu. I wasn't going to relate to that sort of reasons for being vegetarian. But this was a Canadian uh, student at Oxford, a fellow philosophy student, who you know, was a vegetarian basically because he thought we shouldn't treat animals the way they are treated to be turned into, into meat. And I'd never really encountered that kind of straightforward view about animals, and I didn't know very much about how they were treated either. I assumed that they had good lives on farms, grazing in the fields, um, and then, of course, they did get rounded up and taken to slaughter. I, I knew that. But I thought, well, maybe it's worth it because of their, you know, their good lives, and they, then that, just, that just happens at the end, but it's not the same for them as it would be for a human. But, but at that time already, I'm talking about um, 1970, uh, already factory farming was developing. So many animals, particularly pigs and chickens and, and laying hens that lay eggs as well as the chickens we eat, um, were being brought inside and crowded together very intensely in, in darkened sheds that really didn't give them any kind of positive life at all. You know, all of that boredom that you were talking about and stress from overcrowding, and lots of other problems. Uh, so this conversation with the Canadian student um, led me to look into this a bit more, which wasn't easy to do either. There was nothing much written about it except one book by uh, a pioneering woman called Ruth Harrison. Uh, the book was called um, Animal Machines. And um, and I read that and, and 
I was quite shocked, I have to say. Uh, so that was that was my aha moment that that after all, we treat well, the way we treat animals isn't really compatible with any having any concern for their interests. It's just we just at that level it was just kind of an, an economic thing. How can we produce the product as cheaply as possible? And whatever we have to do to the animal to make the product cheaper, we're going to do it. Mm. Yes, um, it, it's interesting you say that. Um, I certainly, when I encountered this pig, was um, I was actually on a grade three camp. So um, we were there to, to hug the baby pigs and um, appreciate new life and animals. And I actually came away with a totally different view of how we're treating animals. So it was um, pretty shocking. It's interesting that you encountered that idea over in England um, through another person. And then you subsequently wrote a really important book in 1975 called Animal Liberation, which, as you say, previously, there was not a lot written about um, this whole issue of how we're treating animals in um, the, the way that you did and um, also talking about these ideas of vegetarianism and um, later on veganism. So how did people respond to your book, Animal Liberation, and what do you think, what would you perceive to be the biggest contribution or um, catalyzation effect that it had? Well, um, the, the book had, had varying responses when it first came out. Um, some of them were ridicule, you know, basically, look, you know, here's somebody who, because this was in the 70s, right, people talked about um, you know, the black liberation movement, the women's liberation movement, um, uh, even the gay liberation movement, I guess. Um, but, you know, so there was this idea of, you know, well, now we've had the ultimate absurdity, right? People think that there should be animal liberation. And, and they ridiculed it by implying that my idea was that you just open the farm gates and let all the animals want, run free, which, of course, would not have been a good idea. Um, so there was that kind of uh, ridicule and, and incomprehension. Um, uh, but at the same time, I started to get a lot of positive responses to it, and it got some very good reviews. It got a very positive review in the New York Times um, book review uh, section and uh, a couple of others and, and that was really encouraging and then within a year or two people started developing organizations like people for the ethical treatment of animals um, which sort of re kept referring to the book as a sort of philosophical basis for what they were doing um, and and those groups grew and uh, the books the ideas of the book spread uh, for that reason in fact various organizations like there was an animal liberation front that used to raid laboratories and take animals out um, and they would leave a copy of animal liberation behind which you know i thought was a nice idea in a way <laughs> give the people something to read to understand why other people had thought that they shouldn't be doing what they were in the in the labs uh so it's it definitely did catch on of course my great regret is that it it hasn't caught on sufficiently to stop things that I was writing about to stop uh, factory farming, uh, to stop uh, unjustifiable, painful experiments on animals. Uh, it's, so it, it, it's had some impact, but uh, really it needs to go a lot further. Yes, exactly. And uh, lots of 
parts of the world are obviously moving at a different pace as well. If we're looking at Australia, there's been so many different um, stories come out that have had a lot of controversy around them, particularly around live exports where we are putting um, sheep, for example, on ships and sending them over to the Middle East or to Asia um, and, you know, many of them dying on the way. Um, there's also, as you say, factory farming and um, the, the real political interests that still exist when it comes to um, the, the eggs and egg industry and, um, you know, really not enabling uh, hens to actually have enough space to move uh, or even stand comfortably. So, you know, those issues are really still front and centre, I guess, in a way in Australia, or at least they haven't been adequately addressed. Um, but I had I had noted um, in some of the work that you've done that you have been quite heartened at least by the European Union in terms of some of their changes that have been made, um, albeit over a very long time period. Yes, you're right. The, the European Union is definitely ahead of Australia um, because there are things that still exist in Australia, um, like the standard battery cage, the very small wire cage in which hens are, are cramped up with uh, no separate place to lay an egg and not enough room even to fully stretch their wings. Um, those uh, have been made illegal across the entire European Union. The, 27 or is it 28 now countries of the European Union um, and uh, you know that's countries that we might think of as not having the same welfare standards for animals as us right we think we think of Spain saying we say oh they allow bullfighting they must be much crueler but in fact you know if you're a random animal in Spain you probably have a much better life than a random animal in Australia because there are very very few bulls used in bullfighting but there are hundreds of millions of, of hens used in cage well anyway millions of, of hens in cages um, and the hens in cages in Spain under EU rules all have more space and a better life than the ones in Australia. Uh, we still have uh, sows in, in breeding sows, the, the, that's the mothers of the pigs who are sold for slaughter, in stalls that are too narrow for them to turn around even. Um, uh, that's not legal in the European Union either. Uh, so, yeah, there have been progress elsewhere. And, and some of the states of the United States too, um, where there's been the possibility of citizens voting. So California, for example, has this mechanism for citizens to collect petitions and then they can get something on the ballot. Uh, so they got on the ballot. Uh, they've twice passed initiatives uh, for farm animals to make sure that they have space to walk around, to turn around, um, and to get rid of those cages for hens that I was just talking about. So also in California, animals are significantly better off than they are in Australia. And I think that's a matter of regret that we're lagging behind on these issues. Yes, I wonder what, what the difference is in terms of the political conditions that have enabled them to take a, a much bigger step in this area than Australia has been. Well, in the case of California, I think it's definitely the fact that you can get a vote on it from the citizens. I think if Australians were to vote on whether to have the standard battery cage, for example, or for that matter, to vote on live exports, um, I think there's no doubt at all that we would ban the battery cage and we would ban live exports. But uh, politically, because there are sensitive swinging seats that have a rural component in them, um, politicians have been reluctant to change these things. And particularly if you have a Liberal National Party coalition, they're very reluctant. And that's why despite the horrible footage that came out of the live export trade, uh, the government they took some modest steps, but they didn't really ban the trade as they should have. 
um, it is it is uh, Labor Party policy uh, and Greens policy too to to ban the trade. So um, you know I'm really hopeful that that we'll get a change of government and that uh, Labor will, with support from the Greens, follow through on that policy and and stop the live export trade altogether because it's the only solution to the horrible conditions that we've seen. Mm. Um, before we move on from this kind of area around k- the killing of animals or the, the taking of animal products, um, I want to talk about the human ways or the human choices that we can make in terms of um, not just changing policy for animals, but also um, our personal choices. And of course, we've mentioned vegetarianism as being um, one of those choices. There's another choice as well, um, which is obviously known as veganism. And um, you write on your website that you would now describe yourself as a flexible vegan, which means that you're mostly vegan, but not fanatical about avoiding all animal products when it is difficult to do so. So in how have you reached the point um, in your life where this is, I guess, the position that you, you that sits well with you? Right. Well, uh, I became a vegetarian uh, after the result of that conversation I mentioned um, uh, in 1970 or maybe it was January 71, I think, actually, by the time uh, I made that decision. Um, and I was vegetarian for many years, and at that time, you know, there were hardly any vegans. There was a, a little vegan society in England, had maybe 300 members, and that was probably most of the vegans in the United Kingdom. Um, and it was very hard to get vegan food anywhere. Most people, if, you know, wouldn't really understand what the word meant even at the time. Um, but gradually, I became aware that uh, particularly the dairy industry involves a great deal of suffering. Um, I mentioned before that when you have mammals and you take the calf away from the mother, that causes a lot of distress to both of them. And that's absolutely standard in the dairy industry because cows don't give milk unless they've recently given birth. So uh, you have to make cows pregnant. Uh, They have to give birth to a calf uh, roughly once a year. Uh, And then you take the calf away. If it's a male calf, it's no use as a dairy cow, and it's not the kind of animal you raise for beef normally. So normally it will be taken away and killed for, for veal. Some of them may be raised for hamburger or something like that. But, but the separation of the cow and the calf is normal because the dairy farmer wants the milk for the, um, for, to sell, obviously. So that's, that's completely standard. I did uh, recently hear about a, a place up near Shepparton called uh, How Now Milk, I think, um, that doesn't do that. It's very small, um, and uh, obviously the milk is more expensive. But that's the first uh, dairy place I've ever heard of that doesn't take the calves away from the mother routinely at birth. So, you know, when I learned about that and about the suffering that's involved um, and also the intensification of the dairy industry, because a lot of dairy farms do have their cows mostly indoors, not not all of them, but many of them. Um, so then I decided that really this is not defensible either and I ought to get off dairy products. Um, And with eggs, certainly uh, any eggs that come from caged hens, I I stopped buying right at the start when I became a vegetarian. With if you have you know good free-range production where hens are outside, um, that's that's more tolerable. I think I'm not so uh, worried about about that. But I think it's better to avoid animal products uh, when you can. Uh, On the other hand, as I said, I'm I'm flexible because I I don't think it helps the movement. to treat this as if it was a kind of a religion where, you know, a tiny amount of skim milk powder added to some product is going to mean that you you can't touch it. Um, 
yes, avoid it if you can, prefer products that are vegan, and now there's a lot more of them out there. But um, to me, it's, as I said right at the beginning when we were talking about utilitarianism, it's not uh, a matter of obeying some kind of rule that says never eat uh, any animal product. It's a matter of saying, what are the consequences of what I'm doing? And, and the consequences that I want are not to give significant financial support to industries that abuse animals. So um, that's why I'm not going to you know, buy things that are animal products um, if I can uh, avoid it. But, but if there are some small elements that make no real significant difference, um, it's not a terrible thing. And then also, of course, if you think about consequences, you have to think about the effect you're having on other people. And if you come across as being too fanatical, I think you'll produce you know, fewer, you, well, it won't be such a good example you're setting, and, and fewer people will be persuaded to act uh, similarly or to move in the direction that you are if you come across as being very hardline. Yes, certainly making modifications to any diet is already a challenge for a lot of people, I know, and certainly um, it wasn't not so much of an issue for me given that I started so early, I don't miss um, eating meat at all. Uh, but in terms of the uh, other areas of animal rights and the animal rights movement um, that you've been involved with in England, Australia and America, um, you founded an organisation called the Australian Federation of Animal Societies, which is now called Animals Australia. And um, there's a whole range of issues that bodies such as Animals Australia uh, would advocate on. And I'm particularly interested in one of the areas which seems to be um, slightly more of a grey area in the utilitarian approach to it and that is in terms of um, experimenting on animals and I'm thinking in particular for medical purposes. Could you um, share with us some of the arguments around why you may or may not um, in, engage in those kinds of experiments? You're right, that's exactly an area where uh, a utilitarian approach might be different from a more absolutist approach and uh, the late uh, Tom Regan, who is another philosopher and a friend of mine, uh, we, we co-edited a book together um, called Animal Rights and Human Obligations. Uh, he was more of a rights-based person. So so he his view was that you can never be justified in performing a harmful experiment on an animal. Um, whereas my view is that, uh, as I said before, we should give the same weight to the suffering of animals that we give to the suffering of similar suffering of humans, uh, that essentially uh, if we're prepared to do an experiment on an animal, then if there were a possibility of doing it on on humans, um, you know, that would we would have to say that would be justifiable as well. Um, but uh, there might be some cases where the benefits of the uh, uh, experiment are so great that even taking, giving full weight to the suffering that you might be inflicting on animals, if there's no other way to find out what you need to find out and uh, to obtain the benefits that you're obtaining, uh, and that has been accepted by a sort of pretty impartial kind of committee, let's say, that's examined the evidence for this, then it, it could be justifiable to continue with an experiment or perform an experiment. So uh, again, I'm not an absolutist about saying there can be no justifiable experiments on animals. But I do think that if you applied this standard, the number of experiments that we would be doing would be a, a very small fraction of the number that we're doing today because mm. uh, in practice, we don't apply this kind of standard. We don't give similar weight to the interests of animals that we would give 
to humans. Uh, and we tend to regard animals just as something that's there to do research on without, you know, with, with some thought about their welfare. I think, again, the situation has improved a little bit since I first wrote Animal Liberation, but um, certainly not, still not nearly enough concern about their welfare. Yes. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM and I'm speaking with philosopher Peter Singer who is uh, here to do a number of events which I'll give the details of um, towards the end of this interview. Peter, um, at now that we're kind of towards the end of this interview, I wanted to bring in one of your other very important ideas um, that has become something um, of a, a more recent phenomenon in terms of the terminology around it, um, which is effective altruism and this concept that you have about doing the most good um, in the most effective way and that that doesn't necessarily bring in things like personal preferences and uh, it certainly does raise um, questions for philanthropists on the the high end, people who have a lot of money to give and also um, those who don't have as much money to give but still want to to make a difference and make change. Um, In terms of effective altruism, what really um, does that concept involve and entail and how is it different from um, altruism? Well, the altruism element is the same. Uh, By altruism, I mean that we're acting essentially to make the world a better place, not only for ourselves, the contrast between egoism and altruism. Uh, and uh, people in the effective altruism movement regard that as a good thing to do. It's not necessarily the only thing to do. We're not expecting people to be saints, but uh, effective altruists are concerned to make the world a better place and uh, to do uh, as much good as they can or to do as much good as possible with whatever resources and time they have to devote to making the world a better place. But what's different about the effective altruism movement is this emphasis on getting evidence about the effectiveness of what you're doing and using that evidence to select the best causes to do the most good. Uh, And people typically don't do that when they're giving to charity. I mean, they will give to some charity because they see a leaflet that has a picture of a smiling kid on it and that appeals to them or they might, you know, often people will say, well, I'm going to give to uh, breast cancer research because my mother died from breast cancer. Um, and they don't really investigate how much good uh, these things are going to do. And if you do carry out those investigations, then very often you find that the things that people are giving to are not really the best things. Because, for example, in terms of medical research uh, or medical interventions, the low-hanging fruit really is still in the low-income countries, in, in some of the poorest countries in the world, where there are diseases that we know how to treat or conditions like blindness that we know how to fix and easily can fix, um, but there aren't the resources to do it. So, for example, there are people are blind in, in low-income countries because they have cataracts. Now, nobody is blind in Australia because they have cataracts because we have a you know, universal health insurance Uh, and everybody who can't see because they have a cataract will get the cataracts removed. It's a very simple operation. Um, But that doesn't happen in in poorer countries. Uh, And similarly, in terms of uh, giving to medical research, the diseases that affect people in in rich countries have already had a lot of research going into them, Um, whereas some of the other ones have had very little research going into them and uh, could could be cured or prevented much more easily and much more cheaply 
if people would do that. So, so those are the kinds of things that effective altruists are aware of, and they're trying to make their resources go as far as possible. Yes, and so in terms of the um, the altruists themselves that are there to perhaps give money, um, you write in the most good you can do that the book that certainly covers this in a great depth um, is that you say effective altruists directly benefit others, but indirectly often benefit themselves. Um, do you find that it? is problematic in some regards that uh, philanthropists often on the higher end will get an immense benefit, personal benefit and gain from perhaps giving money um, to, to certain causes. And does that reduce, I guess, the um, altruistic nature of the gift? Well, it depends what kind of gain you're talking about. I mean, if, if, if they're getting a big tax benefit, for example, uh, and yes, I suppose it does to some extent reduce the altruistic nature of the gift but if the benefit they get is um, that they feel that their life now has a purpose um, and they feel that after all accumulating all that money uh, was a good thing to do because they're able to use it to benefit others then I don't think that reduces their altruism at all I think it's terrific that they do have that purpose and I wish everybody regarded making the world a better place as one of their primary purposes in, in life that's the kind of person that we want to have. Yes. So, you know, the psychological benefit that people get in that way, I think, is, is, is a positive thing, and I encourage it. That's so well said. Um, Peter, just finally, we've been talking about a range of ideas and um, philosophy has been guiding us in that. You, ha along with some of your colleagues, um, have come up with an idea to establish a journal, an academic journal of controversial ideas, which would be peer-reviewed, as all academic journals are, um, or at least the, the reputable ones. And um, it, I understand that it would involve academics who um, may be seeking to put forward ideas that are based and founded on evidence and solid um, rational argument, but may be perhaps controversial and have uh, significant consequences for their career or their reputation should they um, put their name to it. Could you um, just briefly share with us uh, the, the kind of threat that academic freedom faces at the moment in comparison to perhaps 10 or 15 years ago when it was um, maybe not so controversial to put forward ideas and arguments that were um, still may cause offence but were still, uh, you know, all in, all in serving um, furthering ideas and furthering society by having these debates out in the open? Yes, there certainly has been a change in the academic climate and it's not easy to say exactly why. Some people think that the internet has had a major role in that. Uh, other people think that it's more a matter of uh, identity politics and people wanting to be protected and sheltered from uh, criticism or anything that might cause offence. But it certainly is true that uh, particularly you know, junior academics, um, people who don't have a tenured position, um, are putting themselves at risk to some extent when they express controversial ideas, um, you know, a variety of sensitive areas that people might write about. Uh, an example was a, an, an article about uh, arguing that, uh, or basically asking the question, why is it that we think that it's perfectly proper for people to be able to change their gender but not to change their race, right? Because there was a case of a woman who identified as an African-American but was not African-American in terms of background. And it was just raising that question for discussion. Uh, but that got a lot of flack and a lot of abuse uh, for the author, who was a, a relatively young 
female academic. Um, and and there have been other cases. Just recently, uh, um, a, a man called Noah Cowell was dismissed from uh, a postdoctoral position in Cambridge University uh, because people thought that his ideas were racist. I, I think, um, you know, the, that... Obviously, we, I, I don't want to support people who are into racist, racial vilification or hatred, but I think there are debates that you can have within areas about uh, racial differences that uh, you ought to be able to have if they're based on, on good evidence, um, and yet that's become very difficult. Uh, so there's a whole lot of, a whole lot of areas now. Uh, colonialism is another, the history of colonialism is another thing that's become difficult to discuss. So... Uh, my colleagues and I do think that, that giving people the opportunity to publish uh, anonymously if they wish to do so, um, so that they the ideas can get out there but they won't have the personal harmful consequences for their career, um, might be a way of breaking through this climate of uh, which I think has, has become somewhat repressive in terms of, of controversial ideas. Yes, I believe it's also been um, quite problematic uh, in terms of the, the anecdotal evidence I've gathered from others around uh, even conversations in tutorials at universities where um, when there's more sensitivity around issues on race, on sex, uh, as you say, on colonialism and violence. And, uh, and certainly a lot of lecturers have um, felt the need to uh, in include trigger warnings for people and often um, a lot of uh, lecturers who's, who do that, um, they get the response back from students sometimes in some cases that, you know, there was really no need for a warning because as universities are, they are a place to have contests of ideas and to really, um, to not just have opinions but to actually have ideas that are, argued uh, rigorously and based on, as you said, evidence and um, rational argument and that, you know, in order to, to advance an issue and to get to truth, one needs to have quite uh, rigorous debates. And, um, you know, those debates in tutorials are very important for the younger generation coming through universities. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what ideas, uh, that's what universities should be, uh, places for ideas of all kinds and people should expect when they go to university to be challenged in some of their preconceptions. Um, so, yeah, I, that's what we're trying to do, to keep that open. Well, that's wonderful to see. And I know um, people can look out for that. I believe it will be uh, perhaps launching towards the end of this year. We hope so, yeah. We're trying to find the right uh, open access platform so that uh, everybody can read the articles in it without having to pay up for a subscription. Uh, we haven't quite got that in place yet, but we hope to have it by the end of the year. That's so wonderful. Um, Peter, you have been a great example to that very cause, which is to challenge us and to make us um, reflect and question our own choices. And certainly philosophy provides a, a really great framework to be able to examine our uh, life choices and the consequences that they have, not only for ourselves, but for others like animals. And um, if people would like to, they can uh, have a dinner conversation with you at uh, Law Week, which is next week. And and it is um, still, I believe, some tickets might be available and it's on Tuesday, May the 14th from 5.30 till 9.30 at Narankar Restaurant in Melbourne, which uh, people can find at um, the lawweek.net.au website. And I believe it's um, hosted by Lawyers for Animals. That's right. Yeah, great group of lawyers working for animals. Yes. So I'm happy to support them. Thank you yeah. so much, Peter, for your time. Uh, I so much value and um, appreciate your thoughts today. Thanks, Amy. It's been good to talk to you. Thank Bye. you.
That was the wonderful Peter Singer, a uh, fabulous philosopher. He's, um, you know, obviously very well known for his ideas and to challenge us not just on animal uh, ethics and rights, but also on uh, issues like voluntary euthanasia. Um, there's so many areas that he's been pushing um us with in and using utilitarianism uh, as a way to do that. So if you haven't uh, had a chance, of course, you can go through his wonderful catalogue of books. He's uh, written so many. Um, obviously, the most important for our discussion is animal liberation, but he's also uh, authored a range of other related books as well, uh, including things like The Ethics of What We Eat, which was co-authored with Jim Mason. So uh, as I said, you can have dinner with Peter Singer as part of Melbourne's Law Week and uh, you can book tickets for that and it's a Q&A style discussion. You'll get to put forward ideas that you'd like Peter Singer to answer um, and uh, obviously there's a lot of food for thought there just in what we've been discussing and much more. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.